phrase surveillance economy is frequently used to describe the business of collecting and monetizing people's personal information at scale and the companies that are involved in this business. I believe its origins stem from a 2014 essay by Tonchana Zuboff in which she coined the phrase surveillance capitalism, which she characterized as a radically disembedded and extractive variant of information capitalism, based on the commodification of reality and its transformation into behavioral data for analysis and sales. Simply for the advertising industry, the surveillance economy includes all the entities from brands to advertisers, publishers, ad networks, marketing service agencies, content creators who trade in consumer data, which is the currency that fuels this economy. In exchange for providing their data, consumers should expect and are promised engaging content, useful products and services, memorable experiences, personalized communication, and a more meaningful connection with the brands they allow to enter their lives. Although this has not always been the case, and historically, data has been captured without informed consent or resold and shared without transparency nor value exchange. Over the last decade, various public, government, supranational organisations have lobbied for and delivered regulation to ensure consumers have more control, consent and transparency of how the players in this economy capture and use their data. The EU's GDPR being the most widely cited and arguably the most impactful example of such regulation. However, the overriding challenge remains. As our media landscape continues to evolve and become even more fragmented, how do consumers, brands, governments, the advertising industry as a whole, evolve their data strategy, usage patterns, transparency, and in particular regulations to adapt? In this episode of Conscious Thinking, we'll be exploring this topic and discussing what the future holds for the surveillance economy in our post-Brexit, non-GDPR United Kingdom. I'm your host, Ete Davies, Chief Operating Officer for EMEA across Densu Creative, and I'm joined by Matt Potter, best-selling author, ex-current affairs journalist and Chief Content Officer for Densu Creative UK, Ozzy Bayram, UK Countries Director, Ogary, the global leader in personified advertising, and Conrad Sheck, Director of Policy Research at the Advertising Association. To kick it off, a general question uh, to the group. I'd, I'd really like to get the group's thoughts on the latest draft replacement for the data reform bill, which in itself has been a bit of a saga, partly due to the change in governments, but also the current process of getting a, a bill through. So we now have the data protection and digital information number two bill, which now supersedes, I think, the previously drafted data reform bill. And the general mood music that we had under previous iterations of UK government's uh, immediate prospects, it was we're rolling back GDPR, we're going to take away the bureaucracy, we're going to allow businesses to sort of thrive and innovate and you know, kind of use data to both better serve customers, but also to their own commercial advantage. However, in my brief reading, and I'm no legal scholar, but it seems the current DPDI bill draft is essentially the UK's version of GDPR. And it's a much slower, less dramatic drift away from the EU standard, most notable elements being that it's retaining the core parts of the GDPR's purpose limitation principle. So, you know, allowing for further processing of people's data, but only for non-consent uh, collections, such as public interest-based use cases. A right to human review of significant automated decisions also remains in the draft. However, worryingly, the bill does seem to strip away the requirements on businesses to keep records uh, and to undertake proactive oversight of their data processing activities, which, you know, of course, could have implications 
for their ability to respond to user requests related to data or even their ability to comprehensively provide an account of what information has been exposed if they suffer a security breach. And given the precedence of uh, an increase actually in cyber attacks that we are all currently experiencing, both personally and at a corporate level, it's probably something that I imagine uh, the public will be concerned about. General questions of the group, and I'll start with you, Matt. What could the potential implications um, broadly for UK brands be of this latest draft? And it, and like all things, is a draft, and I think it's yeah. a second reading, so there's still more to go through. I mean, since GDPR, lots of brands put a ton of work uh, and investment into prioritising first-party yeah. data, complying with very stringent regulation um, from the EU to protect you know customers' uh, data and manage it. Uh, and many brands try to transform their media and technology ecosystem and some orientating their whole value propositions. Do you see this changing? Like has that, you know, has actually much changed and are people still working through GDPR or? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think there's, there's two points here and I, I, I'm very pleased you've started with this question because I think the first point to make is that we all live in a connected world anyway. So we know, we know that whether or not it's on us to either collect the data or not collect the data, we know that we're going to have to deal with businesses who are subject to different regulations and we know that we've got to work with them. I suspect that the UK in stripping out the need to keep the data and keep hold and stripping out the need of businesses to do whatever is really just going to rely on on legal challenge. Mm -hmm. So I suspect that by them going, well, it's not part of the law anymore, what's going to happen is the first couple of times somebody challenges it and the first couple of times somebody takes a a business to court, Mm. that will change incrementally anyway. But I do think the future appears clear that first-party data is going to be the way to go, that the more we can learn about our own customers, the better off we'll all be. You know, you you learn more about people when you invite them to your dinner party than when you rock up outside somebody else's (laughs) and ask who's going in. Yeah. Um, You know, that's that's where I'd see it. Yeah, absolutely. I guess first part of the day is always a strategic priority. And similar to, as you said, the panic that most people had with GDPR and complying with it, but the legal threat, and I guess the powers the EU had to sort of enforce fines, no one really wanted to be the first. And there were cases of it to get penalised by that. Yeah, there was a lot post-Brexit. We all know of, well, we're going to throw, we're going to have a bonfire of the EU laws, and we're going to do all this. And then I think somebody's actually gone, well, honestly, if, if we look at this, it's, it's not a bad thing to have, this framework. So, you know, let's do what we can and, and change what we need to, to look as if we're changing something. Look, I think the implementation of GDPR came from the right place. Right. I think it's came from the right place that, you know, the wild west of just scraping data, everyone's data without anyone being aware of it is just wrong, right? Morally wrong. And it's not good for business. So it's not good for us, all the end consumer. And I think we've pushed back against that. Did GDPR really deliver what we expected it to deliver? Uh, for example, just for us, just, you know, navigating the web became a challenge because yeah. these massive overlays huge heavy lifting for businesses to implement these consent management platforms and then manage that data. And also consumers just then gave away their data willingly, right? Because it became annoying. You just push yes, 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 yes. So before you were having your data scraped without you knowing, now you're willingly giving the keys to your data castle to everyone because it became very frustrating. Now, first party data is obviously key. I think the challenge with that is a huge number of businesses will find it very difficult to make it scalable. Mm. because yes, the big social media platforms where you have to give your data to sign up to the platform, retailers like the big grocers, for example, will have reams of third-party data, which is valuable and it will be valuable for us to give them our data, right? But smaller to medium-sized businesses, I think, will really struggle to have a scalable uh, solution 
to collecting first party data and then activating against that mm. um, to grow their business. Um, so third party data has a dirty word, but it can be done correctly. Yeah. Do you think just, I'm sorry to butt yeah, in, do you think there's a problem then between, are we seeing a, a kind of a, an invisible, a glass ceiling being built up for small and medium sized businesses where you've got the bigger businesses, absolutely, there'll be enough data for that to become meaningful. The smaller ones, will have to still go to somebody else's market square to exhibit. Exactly that, exactly yeah. that. And it almost will shift more power right, yeah. to the big social media platforms because they control the data, right? We already know certain platforms, whether they're search engines or social media platforms, kind of control the user journey across the internet already. Um, and that was only going to become more prevalent when they control all the data. Yeah, absolutely. I guess it's, uh, you know, to your point, the, the, the infrastructure to make it scalable, but then they also have the double advantage of the brand ecosystems and the, and the touch points that actually allow them to have more places to collect first party data. And, you know, in a lot of the conversation that happens in the public sphere, people are just thinking purely of like web and desktop based experiences. But, you know, to your point, Ozzy, the truth is, you know, if you are with any one of the top, you know, um, 100 brands in Forbes, you're probably giving first party to them data in a hundred other different interactions from your mobile phone device to when you go into a retail store, yeah, you know, yeah, like the, yeah. the, the ecosystem exists there. But I'd like to bring you in actually, Conrad, on this because it's, yeah. I know from the, you know, your policy research point of view with the advertising association, and particularly with the, the SMEs and the members, what are you sort of hearing off the back of the bill on Aussie's point? It's actually um, probably worth me just explaining because there's, there's a lot of misconceptions about what this bill is doing. So mm -hmm. personal data protection legislation is based on three key pieces of legislation. So that's the UK GDPR is obviously based on the EU GDPR. You've got the privacy and electronic communications regulations, affectionately known as PECA. And then you have the Data Protection Act, which 2018, which came at the same time that GDPR was implemented uh, in the UK. Now, what this bill is doing, it's effectively amending these three bits of legislation simultaneously. It doesn't get rid of them. So GDPR still remains. And what it does, it just comes in and actually amends things. Now, taking away the whole Brexit politics out of the way, if we look at GDPR, GDPR was implemented, but I think my opinion is, is that it wasn't implemented in the spirit of what how it was designed. What I mean by this is that GDPR was meant to be a risk-based piece of legislation, that you assess the risk and then you act accordingly on, on these things. Hmm. Now, what we've seen is that under GDPR, there are six legal bases. So one of them, which is most relevant to marketers, advertisers, is obviously consent and uh, legitimate interests. But over time, there's been a huge bias towards consent only as a legal basis. Now, there's nothing in GDPR which says that legitimate interest is less legal than mm, consent. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, what we've been doing in terms of talking to the government about this is, is trying to address this imbalance now, there's another aspect to this in terms of, say, SMEs. Now, are we saying that SMEs have the ability to record keep in the same way as a large organization can? And are they actually dealing with the high-risk data that other organizations are? I would say, arguably, most of the SMEs aren't doing that. And so what it's doing is actually paring back some of the record keeping on SMEs, so long as they're not dealing with high-risk data. And so that's that's the key thing to really understand here. We're not doing away with GDPR. Um, that still remains essentially. And, and you know, as you pointed out, I take that a lot of companies have invested a lot of money on this. It's, it'd be kind of ridiculous then to go and put all that money in there and then have them strip it out and come up with a complete new thing. And also bearing in mind that despite Brexit, the EU is still a major market for the UK. And 
you know, it's important to have data adequacy. So exactly. it doesn't really make sense to go and rip out that just for, for political reasons. Hence, you know, there's still quite a high amount of alignment between both here in the UK and the EU. This to me is fantastically interesting because it feels like almost a, a, a cameo of the entire difficulty that we have, which is that consent is easy to quantify and measure in a binary way. Yeah. Somebody clicked, somebody didn't click. Yeah. Whereas legitimate interest is harder to claim a measure and there's an argument that that could be or it might not be and it's and therefore companies zone in on the easy to measure yeah. and and shy away and freak out about the thing that they may or may not lose an argument about. Exactly. I mean, this is where sometimes, uh, maybe this is kind of stereotyping, but say corporate li- uh, lawyers would go straight into zeroing into zero risk. Yes. Mm. And exactly if you that. go to zero risk, you can't then, you can't dispute if someone's giving you consent, that's kind of ironclad. Whereas as you say, if it comes down to legitimate interest and it's an argument saying, do my interests outweigh the interests of the individual? Right. And I think that that for me is because we see this with platforms as well, right? We see companies going, okay, we 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 know that we can go for this and this and this small little micro measure and small little. If we invest in this, that might get us more, or it might not. But we don't know for sure, so we'll just invest. So we'll just put 50, keep putting fifty p in the slot to get fifty one p out. Yeah, I wonder whether you know, and particularly thinking of our industry, the point around legitimate interest. Part of the challenge is the awareness of consumers and communication out actually in terms of the difference between consent and legitimate interest and why it's in both in the interests of the brands and the businesses you engage with to better serve you and there's legitimate interest in the information that they're looking to capture whether you believe you should be consenting to or not and I don't feel that our industry and you know this is not a provocation to the advertising agency I think more broadly and also the the government there is not enough education and communication with the broad general public, particularly, you know, consumers interacting with brands uh, around that point. And so we're sort of stuck in this cycle of performances being measured by what can be captured through consent methods rather than other areas, because we're not actually pulling the other side of the economy, i.e. the people, <laughs> into the conversation. I just want to pick up another point, which um, Ossie made about consent fatigue. So again, this is another issue that's come about because of how GDPR interplays with e-privacy because e-privacy is is the legislation which governs the use of cookies. And then you've got GDPR, and, and the difference with GDPR is out about the processing of that data. Mm-hmm. And hence you can get multiple consent requests because of how that system, and when you think about the, the complexity of an advertising ecosystem, it cuts across both legislation. Uh, hence you could rely on legitimate interests in, in the collection of that data, but if you're using cookies, mm. you still have to get consent. Right. So that's what happens. And then you get to a situation mm-hmm. where everything then has mm. to go towards consent. It leads to this very, very complex cookie notice. You know, we want your consent to do all sorts of these yeah. things in there and people don't understand what for. And and when you think about legitimate interest, a, a good way to think about it is that if I buy a computer from the store, is it legitimate for that company then to follow up an email and say, by the way, would yeah. you like to buy... Yeah. insurance on this. I think it's legitimate to do that and ask that question. They don't need to ask my consent yeah. for that as long as there is an easy opt-out. Yeah. And most people would assume that as part of general customer service. Yeah, exactly. Um, so there is, yeah, it, it feels like there is a both an education yes. piece, but also yes. possibly an understanding of what people's genuine expectations and awareness 
are because they may be much more to your point, both your points earlier, people may be much more liberal with their data than, you know, possibly, you know, Hollywood writers would expect people to believe in the conspiracy theory. (laughs) It's all being manipulated. But But isn't this all, Hmm. so 100% on this, isn't it, isn't it all about, I mean, the more we talk about this, I'm, I'm hearing that we need a new deal with, with the consumer, with people out there. Mm. We treat permissions marketing as if it's, you know, the whole idea of accept cookies or enter my dungeon traveler <laughs> of 28 pages of consent form, you know, and actually we know that people will just go Ugh, and run away and we're, we're freaking them out and we're freaking them out deliberately because it's a way to get what we want. But wouldn't it be great if we had, if, for example, if schools didn't wait till just now, like they did with disinformation, or till two years ago, like they did with online grooming, to educate kids about uses of data yeah. and about their data shadow online. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but I think to a certain extent we're more uh, digitally savvy than we've ever been. Mm. Right? So yes, regulators yeah. and governments are the ones that uh, started it with the implementation yeah. of GDPR. That was great, um, but then it's consumers that are pushing back and saying, actually. I don't want my data to be scraped anymore. So if we look at, mm. you know, cookies, for example, the cookie is pretty much dead already. Only about 30% of the open web is trackable by third party identifiers. Mm. And that is because, well, partly because also big tech like Apple have pretty much killed the cookie mm. on iOS devices. Mm. But also if we look at the other 50% of the market, which is Android devices, 50% of users are either clearing their cash regularly or yeah. surfing yeah, the exactly. web incognito, right? <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. so actually that pool of accessible yeah. users is yeah. so small. So using those third-party identifiers, we're just essentially, as an advertising industry, spanning them in the same small yeah. substrata of the, of the ecosystem with the same messaging over and over again. In one angle, people sort of look at the varying regulation and cultural approaches to data and general internet use and you know between UK and Europe where we now stand and then also what happens in America which is much more sort of commercially driven lots more paywalls and so on and then you know uh, Asia which I think the world knows very little about so you have already that sort of jigsaw of regulation that jigsaw of you know kind of cultural attitudes and general user interactions and then on top of that you lay the activity of private companies so to your point we you know are we at this point where it is this sort of distributed global web rather than the connected or we're you know we're sort of bleeding towards that and thinking about it specifically for you know our industry and global brands where you know the mantra for eons has been consistency of brand experience and you know in integration you know that sort of famous word of integration how do they navigate that potential scenario one thing i'd say about this and i guess it was too optimistic of us to think initially that we would just have this amazing, you know, interconnected all around the world and everybody <laughs> yes. would, would abide by that. Because yeah. what it does, um, and this is something we're kind of really understanding a lot more of the effect of this. I think now probably actually thinking about this sort of started a few years ago, but really this interconnected behavior actually crosses borders. It, it infringes and impacts on sovereignty. Mm. And what we're seeing is actually governments then taking, well, taking this approach that actually they want to have a bit more control on that. Mm-hmm. And hence, you know, they're exerting their the sovereignty on, on these aspects and, and exerting some control where they think too much of that control went to, to large corporations and organizations. And it's quite easy if you're in that situation, in that business, global business, you can do things like regulatory arbitrage where you can kind of play off different governments and, and do things. So I think that that's what happening. But going to your point about how do companies deal with this? I think it essentially comes down to where 
you do most of your business. Mm. And that's essentially where you need to then comply with, with mm. those laws and regulations. And, and then putting it back to the UK, one thing which has been made quite clear by uh, the government is that, of course, you need to be compliant with UK regulations. And if you're doing business with the EU, obviously you need to be compliant with them. Now, if you opt to continue to comply with EU regulations, well, that's okay. You, that still makes you compliant with the UK. So it's that kind of approach that you need to think out. Now, it becomes a lot more difficult when you're looking at, say, very, very different uh, data protection regimes and how you manage that. And I think it probably requires some separation of the data or some kind of identifiers which allow you to quickly identify and separate out that and ensure that it's a separate compliance regime that applies to that type mm-hmm. of data. Yeah, absolutely. Because it, on, you know, on one hand, you have the opportunity to innovate, you know, based on the difference in regulation and kind of compliance. And, and you know, we all know that the challenge of growth depends on that innovation. But then there is also designing for the strictest common denominator, which gives you like efficiency and the point we made earlier on around scalability. And I guess that's the challenge that will face sort of multinational global businesses is where do you sort of lean into? At what point do you go, let's just design for GDPR because that is where we've put a lot of effort in and we can keep that consistent. And there may be some markets where we still have further work to go or do we go hell for leather into creating these bespoke environments and hope that it gives us advantage over those who are trying to build that kind of consistency based on, on, on efficiency. Yeah. But I think some of these, the truly global businesses are already used to doing this, yeah. right? When there was it CCPA in the U S or in GDPR, they're, they're juggling multiple different mm. uh, regulations across mm-hmm. the globe already. And then having to have a different data strategy for each geo. So for those guys, it should be relatively simple. And um, to Conrad's point that it's, it is just a kind of a similar version of GDPR anyway, right? Mm-hmm. And if you're compliant in both territories, then it's going to make it much more streamlined for everyone. And yeah. I don't think, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not that privy to the government, but mm-hmm. I'm sure they're not looking to make more heavy lifting for brands and agencies yeah. and, and uh, yeah. the consumers in this space, right? They want to make it as simple as possible. Um, so upsetting, you know, or turning over the apple cart is not really what they want to do. But um, I think taking control is probably the right thing. But, um, you know, throwing the, the baby out of the dishwasher is not really what you want to be doing, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, the general narrative from Michelle Donnan, I, I know the Advertising Association is part of the advisory board, is that they've been co-designing with businesses. And I don't know if you can speak too much of it, if it's uh, confidential, but it'd be good to understand a bit more about that process and I, I guess in the capacity that the AAS had in that you know in the drafting of the bill like where do you think it could potentially go further so um actually this is worth explaining as well why we have the number two bill so we had the original bill and that was based on a consultation that ran I think it was sometime uh, about two years ago DCMS basically wanted to set up this new uh, consultation, set a new strategy for the government, which they then published like data and new direction. So that's where this bill originates from. The first bill was put on pause because of the conservative leadership uh, challenge. And that gave them the opportunity to put things on pause and then go back to business and say, let's go and input into this. And how can we improve on this original bill? Hence the reason why we've got this number two bill. So, this business advisory group, which I've, I've sat on there, and other colleagues from the DMA as well have been part of, we've been there and uh, trying to put forward the industry's uh, 
viewpoints on these things. Now, in terms of the, the bill, it's tried to address, which I mentioned about the imbalance between consent and, and legitimate interests. There's been great stuff as well in terms of progress on market research. So identifying that also as scientific research. So scientific research can also incorporate commercial research. But there's other areas which we think it could go a little bit further on. So going back to the issue about cookies, uh, we have this interesting situation. And going back to this, um, it's getting a little bit technical now, but the interplay again with e-privacy and GDPR. So you can have a situation where a consumer visits a website, sees the, the, the cookie banner, accepts to advertising, but then rejects ad performance or audience measurement, which is, you know, for anyone who's in the business would be horrified yeah. at that because <laughs> yeah. that's a wasted ad. Yeah. Yeah. You, you don't know who's clicked through it or mm. anything, and then you can't invoice for that. Um, you know, you can't then design your content about this. So it's about, I think, pushing on those things which we regard as low risk. So it doesn't really take very kind of intrusive personal data. It's not likely to affect their fundamental rights, just using a very kind of legalistic term. So, you know, can we create more exceptions to allow for that? And then it goes back to the other point about, you know, reducing the complexity of these cookie banners, yeah. which yeah. then – you know, fulfills original purpose. Yeah. Can, also, can I pick up on that thing that you've, which I, because I think, again, this is quite fundamental. The point about market research and business intelligence can be classed as scientific research. Yeah. And, you know, I love this. And I think that's, a, that's a, a clear way forward. But in order to do that, you know, there's, there are some assumptions that you'd have to make, isn't there? Like, for example, since the Enlightenment, the, sci- the scientific method involves the benefit on a wider basis of the research that you gain. Whereas I think, data and what business intelligence people get is very jealously guarded and is treated as a kind of, it's a zero something, you know, I've, I've, I've managed to nick this data. I know these things. Nobody else shall ever know it. It will remain a dark art. Do we think that there is a redress and a balance so that actually rather than treating data as this kind of thing that you can, you know, it, it's a greater in Silicon Valley startups that claim that they will have data that nobody else has. It's a better indicator of how much funding they'll get than that they will have money that no one else has, which is just clearly crazy. Do we think that there is a reset in a way that we can say, look, let's start treating data as a resource for all, as a thing where we can all make things better for everybody? It brings me to a point I actually wanted to, to raise around the, the role, say, for example, of the ICO. And, you know, particularly when we're talking about legitimate interest of data and qualifying data as and elements of the data that's captured as scientific material, which, which could be used across different sort of services and sectors. I would assume part of the ICO's role as that kind of sort of independent regulatory body is to also drive more of that transparency on data, which is, you know, arguably like all scientific information in the public interest and is essential for the functioning of any surveillance economy. Now, the draft bill, the ICO, it's it's going to have a new board as part of the bill, which will be appointed or approved by the Secretary of State. Now, there are some schools of thought that will think that this is undermining the independence and that I think very much varies on your perspective of the government, I think. Um, and then there is also, because, you know, that board will define the ICO's guidance and priorities, which is pretty critical. But then there is also that other viewpoint that you've just mentioned before, which is that also could be a benefit in that it then pushes the ICO to make sure that, you know, data and use of data and how that can be used in you know, other areas and public interest is more readily available and there's more transparency there. Now it's been debatable, I think, in different circles as how effective the ICO has been 
you know, and it, it's sort of kind of rolling the past. But that board, like, what what is everyone's kind of view on that? I mean, without getting too political, like, what's you know? so politics aside? I mean, one thing to note: if you look at say the structure and makeup of Ofcom, what this bill is doing is actually proposing that the ICO become a bit like how Ofcom is structured. And if you look at the, the, the legislation which establishes Ofcom, you know, the Secretary of State has that power to nominate the chair mm-hmm. um, and actually, uh, I think, nominate uh, non-executive members. So that's nothing unusual in that sense. It's actually yeah. bringing it a bit more in line with other regulators. Mm. Now, the point of the ICO being independent, of course, this is really, really important. It's also part of the whole EU assessment of whether the UK is data adequate, <laughs> that, you know, you have an independent uh, data protection uh, regulator. But it's also really important for industry as well to see that that regulator is independent. So hopefully, you know, that won't change. And I think others will look at this and, and look into the detail to ensure that there are the next necessary checks and balances for that. But th- there's one other thing which I think is worth pointing out in that this bill will give a specific requirement to the ICO and that's basically have a duty towards innovation, which it didn't have before. Mm. So the ICO was very much looking at, you know, a breach or, you know, a harm to fundamental rights. Yeah. Now it's got to then take into innovation into account. So it's got to do a bit more kind of a holistic, mm. a bit more balancing of the situation. Accelerator and brake, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. yeah. But I think yeah. we're in a good position, right? If you look at, you know, to Comrade's point again around, they are communicating with businesses. That doesn't always happen, as we know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so they are asking the people that know, right, and yeah. the people that are going to be uh, affected by this for their opinion. So I think that's a really good start. Now, none of us know if it's going to be fully independent or it's going to work effectively longer term because it's not in place yet. But the 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 signs are positive, and let's hope that that bears fruit long term, right? And uh, yeah. but at least they're in communication with other people because I think that's massively important. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's that's so key because another sort of legal regulatory body that is making decisions on behalf of what it believes in the public interest without communicating either to the public or the brands where often we have direct relationships with feels slightly redundant in the modern era given all the topics we've raised before about the connectedness and actually the awareness that exists you know uh, broadly across the public and there is no way I, I really like the point made about innovation because there's no way to do that without engaging both with the businesses and even in the act of protection with consumers and understanding what people's perspectives are around the changes with the bill, but also, you know, where we sit in terms of compliancy, consent and legitimate interest. So there's, there are definitely reasons, I think, to be optimistic in that. But is there not a, and I know I've kind of skirted around, is there not a fundamental issue of data literacy in the country, among the popular and in Within brands. I mean, the numbers of times, you know, I've seen brands a little bit like 10, 20 years ago, you'd get, you know, a CMO going, yes, Kelvin, our work experience person handles social media and they will. And now you've got exactly that happening with We've got a terribly smart person doing data things. I, in the meantime, will go with my vibes. And uh, the pandemic has shown us, if it's shown us nothing else, that the gap between companies and governments and whatever using people's data and the popular perception of what they are doing and they know ends up in all sorts of batshit crazy places. Like, you know, 5G are causing my pandemic, yeah, you know, yeah. or whatever. The the narrative around data definitely seems to have been hijacked either by, yeah, as you said, extreme conspiracy theorists or it is forming the basis of 
dare I say it, Matt, very interesting novels or, you know, it's not kind a novel, of it's a TV series. Do you know what I mean? Because it's, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's sort of being pushed as this kind of, uh, boogeyman and it's because there's yeah. very little of the perception <laughs> yeah. there's very little literacy or understanding exactly that I, I'd 100% agree with uh, Matt there. and interestingly within the um, Communications Act 2003 there was actually a requirement for Ofcom to promote media literacy yeah. but arguably you could say you know the ICO should do something more about data literacy as well and um, there's a lot of misinformation out there people don't understand that it's all very kind of mysterious and too technical they want to understand it, or if they want to understand it, can't really can't make any sense of this thing. Data is really important. And I say this, obviously people might say that I'm a bit biased working for the Advertising Association. However, when you think about this, so for instance, a consumer logs on and say, for instance, for religious beliefs, maybe they may be Jewish or Muslim. Do they want to get pork adverts? They don't want that, That's right? So, but in order to do that, you need to know something about that consumer mm. in order to to direct those adverts away from that person. And, and then similar you know, argument with a, a vegan, you know, would they be happy receiving adverts which promotes meat products? Absolutely, right? So you've got that, and I can see how in the same coin that serves up to you more appropriate things for your particular lifestyle in terms of advertising is the thing that creates a political echo chamber, though. Right? So is the thing where I can I can gauge that you know somebody's more likely to be a conservative, libertarian, something, 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 and start amplifying those news clicks that I think will fire them up to. And so there's a really interesting point about, should there be a point where we say, we need to not know certain things, we need to not go too tight on what people, we know people already want, because that promotes a healthier democracy. Yeah, some some personalisation, you know, is is beneficial to people, yeah, right? right. Yeah. Data is the nuclear reactor of our business, Ogre. Um but... And, and, but, you know, it's not seen as cool, right? As mm. I guess like maths in the UK, you know, mm. the Prime yeah. Minister's mentioned yeah. it. it's not, mm. you know, people feel it's like it's nerdy or it's not as uncool if you're, if you're, if you're interested in those areas where actually you're super cool later in life if you're in them areas because yeah. you're going to be extremely valuable. The to- least cool guy in Star Trek was yeah. cool data, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're going to be cool when you're older and you, yeah. you've got a really significant yeah. role in the business mm. and you're the guy that people are looking towards um, yeah. because they, everything is underpinned by the data. And I think we get confused that data means personalization and an individual's data, and it doesn't right. have to. So Absolutely, as I yeah. mentioned that we, we, we have data at our core as a business and we are a data company at heart, but we don't use any personalized identifiers because we don't see that as a long-term strategy for monetization or just to exist yeah. in the future. Absolutely. Right. So mm. you can, you can have reams of data, but it doesn't have to be hyper-personalized and it can be fully compliant and you don't even need a consent notice. Yeah. For example, if you're not touching those personalized third party identifiers. It's really interesting. You know, it reminds me of the, the DNA conversation that happened, you know, has happened over the past 50 years where we were convinced that once we had decoded the genome, we would know everything about a person, <laughs> everything. Yeah. We'd have the genotype. Mm. Oh, your entire life. And then we realized, no, maybe we'll know if we know everything about their history. We'll know everything about them. Okay, add that to their side. Oh, no, we don't. And now it's like we keep looking for the thing that will predict what people are doing. And, and now it's gut flora and fauna that can affect. The more we are very specific, as you say, the more we go, if I only know what this person has always bought, but we need to embrace that sense of uncertainty and, and I suppose predictive models that leave some room for fuzziness, don't we? Like like yours is, is fantastic for that, right? Yeah, well, advertising's always been based on that, right? Yeah, so, right. you know, if we look at offline channels, they were yeah. never about the individual. Yeah. They were about personas at scale, right? So if yeah. you were buying a national newspaper and yeah. putting an ad in there, you knew very top line, rough, you know, age yeah. demographics, 
male, female, and roughly what they're interested in. Right. But it was never personalized to you. It was just one ad that's going to reach millions of people. So do you think people got hypnotized and, and spoofed by the whole promise of personalization into thinking that was more important than it is? Yeah, I think I, so. I think, and it yeah. doesn't work, right? Because no, brands right. don't want to talk one-to-one to, to me. They want yeah. to talk to millions of people that look like me yeah. because they don't want to sell one product. They want to sell millions. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I've always thought about, you know, Hamlet wouldn't be better if, because I was in the audience, it got called Hamlet Prince of Slough. I mean, it would arguably be worse. <laughs> but, 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 you know, no offense to anyone that is no, listening. I mean, I am from, so I'm, I'm, yeah. I was born there. I'm fine. But, but the point is, it's that personalization thing where people have gone, you know, because we know about you, we're going to use it. I think it comes back to that point of kind of exchange because to a certain extent, you do want that level of uh, personalization to Conrad's sort of points uh, earlier on. But you also want some sense of choice and kind of agency. And, you know, the way I, I think you know, our industry has sort of approached it in the past is that, like, we have the potential to do this personalization. You, you spoke about DNA. It reminds me of that phrase in Jurassic Park, right, where they hijacked it. It's like, <laughs> you know, because you didn't think of whether they should or not, right? And so, and it, it sort of ties in, I guess, to the whole, you know, consent and legitimacy. It's interesting to go, there still has to be some form of a dialogue with the user to go, where does your individual level of personalization start and stop to give you better service. But actually, in order to do that, I may need to capture more than you are actively consenting to or whether you care about what's actively being consenting to. But like, is that does that contract have to exist with each individual? I, I would say, actually, if you think about the younger generations these days, it's very much in, individualistic. Um, and, you know, people demonstrating it or basically saying, you know, they have a specific preference in, in whatever areas. I think this has also kind of been encouraged by, you know, the fragmentation of media. We've got proliferation of devices. So, for instance, I was thinking about this before that, you know, back in the old days, and I say old days in inverted commas, <laughs> um, but, you know, you'd have one TV and whoever had the control of the remote control. <laughs> terrible Basically, <complex. laughs> you know, they, yeah. had the, they had the control of what was being watched at the time. But these days, I could be watching something and my wife could be looking at her device, and her daughter would be looking at her device, so we're not actually, we're, we're in the same room, but not necessarily looking at the same thing. And so, you know, technology has in some ways encouraged this trend. I think as time has developed, we, we've kind of gone towards much more individualistic kind of society. Um, and I think people like that. So again, thinking about this idea about the advertising based on, on your personal preferences, I mean, if you take this back to like a really, really basic example, and you think about a, a shopkeeper who is in your, your community or neighborhood and recognizes you and say, hi, Mr. Sheikh. Oh, good, good to see you. You know, how have you been? How's, how's wife and, and kids? You want your usual today? In some ways, what the companies and the brands are trying to do are offering a, a bit of an illusion, a sense of that personal connection. But, you know, from a company's perspective, you're trying to do it scale because you're trying to sell as much as, as possible. But at least it gives that impression to the, the user that there's some understanding on there and there's this kind of customization, personalization that's going on. Yeah. No, no me to serve me. Right. That's the, the sort of often touted phrase by any brand that was trying to get to yeah. that holy grail of like this unique customer profile for every individual. But at some point, because it has to be scaled, they just create these macro segmentations, which ironically were, results in them being more invasive on an individual right. level. Because- and I mean, there's, there's, we can learn a lot. Yeah. I think you're, I think you're right. I mean, this about looking at whether a thing is also true off platform and in the, in, as it were, the in it, space. Is it a behavior that exists? Right. In, and I think there's yeah. a, I think, you know, there is a mm. thing where 
emotional intelligence. You know, I've been reading a lot about the science of, I think, really important for brands to read more about how not to be creepy. (laughs) So I've been reading one of the great joys, actually, is academia.edu, you know, where where you can look at scientific papers on your phone and it will take you two minutes. And I've been reading a lot about creepy and creepy is when, it's not an axe man in a horror movie isn't creepy. Creepy is when somebody does the, maybe the right thing, but at just the wrong time or in just the wrong, you know, you're talking to me and I, but I'm looking at your hands, you know, you're telling me a joke, but I'm laughing at the wrong thing. For people freak out. And I think brands get that point about emotional intelligence wrong. They target well, they target precisely. But to your point, it's like going into the butchers and instead of the butcher going, hello again, Mrs. Miggins, is it the usual? Be like the butcher going, don't come in unless you fill out 28 pages of being, me being able to call you. Agree now. What am I going to call you? And that's not emotionally intelligent. That's it, but it's data centric. And I, I almost think there's a new deal needed, isn't there, between brand and consumer about what, what you expect, mm. what you think is fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. No, but I, I think it's worth looking at why we're in this position in the first place. Right. And I think that's because the internet exploded and more and more eyeballs you know, move to digital platforms. So we decided to, how are we going to monetize that? Well, we'll just do what we did offline. Yes. So yes. whether that's, you know, I worked for big, big press publishers before and, and magazine publishers and it's, can we replicate the magazine or newspaper online? Well, it's a totally different environment. And we're, we're going down that same, same alley on the metaverse in some instances. Well, should we just fill it with billboards like it's the outdoor <laughs> yes, exactly. world, right? Yeah. And then they realize, well, actually just put in a, you know, a print ad online doesn't drive performance. So what we now need to do, we need to do hyper-targeted to try and drive performance Yeah, because it's not delivering what the offline stuff does and brands aren't seeing the ROI off the back end of it. Um, so then we then, you know, spin a narrative that, you know, 8.6 click-through rate is really, really good right, or yeah. 50% of adding view for two seconds is a good job. Um, and then we did the same when video hit online, right? We just put videos in the random places on the website that just played. And very and- quickly, the metrics, beca- I mean, I'm talking to a, 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 an account director who, who said, um, whatever, whatever meta tells me about my metrics, I have to do the same as when you tell the doctor how much you drink and I have to halve it or double it and then tell the client. And I know that they'll still go, yeah, Jimmy Hill, you know, uh, if I may use a retro phrase, but it, we've, we've kind of, like you said, we've spun narratives around the fact that we're anxious about whether things work. So that, we, so we had to have that data just yeah. to try and try and eke a bit more performance out of a, a format that shouldn't be, is out of place, essentially. Yes. Uh, we're using legacy formats and uh, ways of working in a new environment. And even if we look at just digital over the last 10 years, we still have a lot of the same formats and the same way that we buy or sell media yeah, online, whereas point. the way we use media has changed in the mm. last six months, yeah. really, let yeah. alone in the last 10 years. Yeah, and I, it's that sort of the exponential change of, well, the exponential growth of technology and you know the innovation that's happening and how that's driving the change in behaviour is problematic to keep up with. That's the sort of central theme to it. And so there's a tried and tested, what do we know? How much does this feel different to what's changing on a monthly basis? And can we kind of keep squeezing it through? But it, it feels like there needs to be either a watermark or a paradigm shift where we acknowledge, actually, we've said it before, the media landscape is fragmented, but also is more complex and diverse than it's ever been. And we need to reevaluate and evolve some of the existing practices for this new world, but also build a behavior in that that is happening at the same pace that it's the innovation is it's happening. It's a really fast 
arms race, isn't it? And you know, we, mm. there's that phrase about generals who are always fighting the war before the one that they're actually <laughs> fighting now, you know. Yep. And I wonder, we, we all saw it a couple of years ago in the US Senate, these hearings where oh, the Facebook you know, ones, will you commit the, uh, to ending Finster? Yeah. And it's like, Sir Finster just means my friend's yeah. Instagram. Yes. And uh, they yeah. clearly don't get it. And I wonder whether inviting more voices from a more. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess it goes back to, it's probably a bigger existential point around it in that, you know, and we mentioned about the ICO, but whether it is at a government level or, you know, the education within schools, those congressional hearings, and, you know, we've had similar, like yeah. with the review boards in, in, in the UK, show a real sort of lack of knowledge, actually, totally of the things that are currently driving the world, how we communicate, our experiences, how we sort of trade kind of as an, an economy. And maybe, dare I say it, we need more experts in those areas, like independent experts. But in order to get there, we need to actually be building that expertise more generally across the the kind of the public. Yeah. And I think we could hold ourselves to, to a higher account as an industry mm. as well. Right? Yeah. We could take responsibility, as you mentioned, yeah. the, the very famous Jurassic Park moment that reminds me of my childhood is, <laughs> yeah. you know, just because we can doesn't yeah. mean we should, right? Exactly. And, yeah. uh, and in this instance, when it takes in the moral high ground, maybe we should do it a bit more and say, actually, we're not going to do that. We are going to be more innovative. We are going to move the needle and not just mm. go to the lowest common denominator. Um, and openness, and- is that, because I remember, you know, when you say open mm. data now, mm. it feels like something from 2014 when a lot of people going open data and open, that had promise. To be fair. So a really uh, clear example of it, which we're all fairly accustomed to now is, is open banking. Right. Um, and, you know, you ask, I assume every average person on the street amongst one of the bits of the data, apart from medical data that they would probably prefer to keep most confidential would be anything financial or related to the bank. But now we happily trade that information between different banking institutions because there is the value there to have everything in, in, in one place. And it, it's quite interesting that journey because you know, a decade ago it would have been inconceivable, A, for the banks to be able to agree to it, but also to get customers to be signing up to one bank, understanding what the situation is yeah. where they are elsewhere, but it's been adopted now. And dare I say, is actually the first thing that you're offered when you open any new bank account is like yeah. put all your, you know, your sort of records and information in, in yeah. one place. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think those um, like open data standards, particularly open banking, which is a great example of that, is, is great for the consumer because it drives competition with those yeah. banks yeah. to improve their service. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if I'm not happy with bank A, I can just quickly move over to bank B, you know, and if bank A wants me back, then you've got to do a better job, et cetera, et cetera. But I think, I mean, there's basic limits in terms of how open the data is. And going back, Matt, your earlier point about, you know, this kind of proprietary knowledge and stuff, which companies don't want to give out. And I think there probably is some limits on there. So, you know, in terms of my data, you know, it's great that there's ability to move that from service to service which is great. I think it's there's probably limits in terms of you know the corporate data. So for instance, if you think about say social media companies, my data in the individual sense is not worth much, despite, you know, I might think it's particularly valuable, but uh, if anyone doesn't know me, won't think it's particularly valuable. And it, and it isn't. The value really is comes in, in terms of the aggregate of that value. And it's also the information about, say for instance, the, the social graph, that's the the kind of real value thing, and I think it's difficult to to open that up there because at the end of the day, it's a company that's invested heavily into this, um, and it's their proprietary knowledge. 
Yeah, I'd, I mean, I'd like to sort of uh, touch on that point because I feel for a long time there's been discussion in tech circles and in our industry around at some point, you know, Joe Public is suddenly going to be aware of that their data is a commodity and there'll be a different exchange uh, with consumers. The point you made, uh, Conrad, is pretty key. And An individual is not exactly an oil well themselves, but they're a collective group that are aware of that data is a different story. But that, I, I mean, unless I'm missing it, that doesn't seem to have materialized that sort of, and why do we think that is? is? Is that back to the data literacy thing? Or is it just that, you know, it's, it's not a conversation that's being pushed I think it is data literacy. I think yeah. I think when I think of of the awareness of people about data, we get very quickly into Snape at Hogwarts. Mm. We get very very quickly into it's a defence against the dark arts, and mm. everyone's got my data and all mm. my data. And companies I deal with, you know, let's say my mobile phone company and my 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 service provider on that. I I have sometimes asked, I've said, can you tell me what my bill was like? We can't tell you because of data protection mm. and i know that the person on the other end mm. is making that up and they've just thought of those words to say because they don't know how to get into the computer because it's my data but at that fundamental level within companies within brands within the architecture of marketeers within mm. brands people go from there are people who know ex- with extreme and possibly too extreme specificity but can't communicate very well because they're very specific data people and then the rest of the world that are great with communication but haven't got a clue and those two cultures, a bit like Psycom, you know, where scientists get owned on Radio 4 by sensationalists because scientists are more sober at communicating where sensationalists go for the easy win. Isn't there already a form of compensation anyway? Because when you think about it, you know, the internet mostly is free and it's basically funded by in, by advertising. So in that sense there, there is a value exchange. And I, I think we don't really speak up enough about that. So instead of actually thinking about my specific data has a particular monetary value. In fact, I get benefits from that because if I surf the web, most of the sites that I surf are free because yeah. it's funded by advertising. Yeah. I think we, we don't really do enough about that, talking about that. And it's one of the thoughts that went through my mind that, you know, the advertising industry is great at promoting products and services, but it's not really great at promoting itself. Yeah. And that's yeah. something we could do a lot better on. Yeah. Totally agree. And actually, I mentioned this in a speech last year at um, an, uh, an event, an advertising event, actually, that, you know, it's it's quite a, a, something nice to say to like your parents and other people that actually you make the internet free. Like that's your purpose. And that's why we're here as an industry, which mm. is more noble than just saying we sell some white space or yeah. we're working and just, you know, we're trying to drive audience by creating Do some we, content. We need, like in the old days, you get the potato marketing board or the milk. Ma- we need the internet marketing board <laughs> yeah. to make the case for the fact that the internet, because you get all these dark mutterings about if, it, if it's a free service, then you're not the consumer, you're the product. Yeah. But and you get all of this going on, but actually the fact yeah. it's a free service. And people moan about advertising, but you know, then you would, would they be willing to pay for that content? Yeah. Right? Yeah, because yeah, someone's yeah. got to pay for yeah. that journalist yeah. to write that content yeah. and for the ad servers and yeah. the, the whole infrastructure of the internet, yeah. which is really cool. But I think there are platforms where there are definitely are platforms where you can sign up and they will give you a uh, a share of your data, you know, the monetization of your data. Uh, but I think uh, to everyone's point, I think everyone's agreed on that as an individual, our data is not worth a huge amount, right? So unless um, people know what I've been surfing, in which case I'll pay anything. So actually, longer term, people may sign up to that platform, but when they're seeing they're getting quite a small amount of money back off the back of it, is it really worth it in the long yeah. term? 
And I think that's that's going to be the challenge from an individual basis. I think I'm going to make loads of money for my data is going to be naive, I think. Yeah, I, I love what you just said about um, reappraising uh, our industry in terms of part of what we do is keep the internet free because the internet itself is an, just as a pure information resource, the freedom, the access it gives to the information to the world globally yeah, yeah. is a net beneficial thing. Yeah, and of I, course. I, yeah, I think that, that, that there's, there's a mindset shift, as you say, that needs to happen both within our industry, but also how we then, again, talk to consumers about it, that part of the reason this advertising exists is because there is a macro benefit. So oh, this, this is that, that yep. idea then that we've all been set around a new covenant. Yeah, yeah, yeah so you look, billions of people had no access to, you know, connections to other people. Yeah. In different geos to um, information to education, you know, it's an it's an amazing thing. It doesn't mean it doesn't come with some negative connotation. Yeah. Of course, it does. Every everything does. Unfortunately, yeah. that's life. Um, Baby but, um, shark and all of those things yeah. that come to us yeah. through the internet. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So, but um, but you know, I think advertising serves a really really good purpose, and you know, the internet would definitely not be what it is today if it wasn't free to access for all. Mm. Um, obviously there is a cost to it in terms of your monthly subscription to, to your provider, but in terms of accessing content that, you know, it just wouldn't be what it is today. It would be a small little thing online yeah. if it, you had to pay for content and yeah. everyone would be fighting over tiny little audiences. Yeah. If, if you mentioned as well with news, if every news provider was behind a pay, yeah. it, it basically be, yeah. we'd create a, a society where, you have the haves and have nots. And if you didn't have money, you wouldn't have access to news. Yeah. And what a horrible society that would be. Yeah, absolutely. Imagine being it, a news bootlegger though. That'd be yeah, bad, wouldn't it? it? Yeah. yeah. We, torrent the headlines. Yeah. There's, there's an argument to be positive. We'd be even worse than the situation we have around misinformation because that's one thing in itself, but the lack of access to information is where, you know, we see historically that, that's generally when conflict starts to arise, right? Because then some, you actually allow more proliferation within the smaller groups of uh, misinformation without any kind of check and balance to it, right? Or without any kind of alternative argument being put forward. So, yeah, I, I mean, uh, a free internet and particularly a free internet that supports news and the share of information, I think is critical now more than ever when you sort of look at the geopolitical landscape. Reframe the media and advertising industry as a, as a, as a non-profit. Yeah, well, I mean, that's, that, <laughs> that definitely is a theme for another podcast. So we've, <laughs> we've sort of, we've had quite an expansive conversation here, which is, is, is great. You know, we've, we've gone from the bill to sort of kind of looking at general human behavior to, um, you the know, best quote from reason, Yeah. Re- and the reason for the internet and, you know, sort of uh, exchange of information. And generally what I sort of taken from a lot of our conversation is, there are lots of reasons, as with anything you mentioned, um, Ozzy, before that there's negative, but there's lots of reasons to be optimistic, particularly you know, bringing it back to the bill around the potential for in- innovation to better serve customers, essentially, and, you know, also help businesses uh, kind of grow, which in itself has an economic benefit. However, the other central thing that we've got in this is that in order for that to be responsible and actually effective, there needs to be a reconsideration around data literacy and a contract uh, with the consumer. So thank you for what's been a really informative and expansive conversation. I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, Matt, Conrad, Ozzy, thank you very much. Uh, That's it. Thank you again to our guests, Matt Potter, Conrad Sheck, and Ozzy Bayram for a fascinating conversation. Also, thank you to our Dentsu Creative Editorial and Production teams for powering this whole series, to Bang Studios, the Nerve Music Library for our soundtrack, and to all of you for listening. 
If you've enjoyed this conversation, you can find lots more like it by subscribing to the Conscious Thinking series wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more, go to consciousadnetwork.com forward slash podcast. Thank you.